The peace of Christ be with you. Give yourselves about three deep breaths to be settled into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers, young and old, let us worship the living God. Please rise in body and or spirit for the call to worship. Come, for you have been called. Come, for you will be supplied with what you need. Come, for God is welcoming you home.
You may be seated. Welcome. Welcome to worship here at Westminster. It is good to be with you today. After worship, I invite you out into our garden for coffee and tea, snacks, and especially a chance to get to know each other a little better. If you're sitting here in the middle during our offering, if you'd take that pew pad and sign it, pass it down, pass it back, perhaps take a look at the names of people sitting near you so you can greet each other by name after worship. Also, if you're a visitor, the information on that pad is a great way for us to be in contact with you. So let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. Inviting God, challenging God, caring God. We want to answer your call. Some of us cannot believe we are called. Some of us have been taught that others are unworthy. Others still founded by the stories of you. Illumine us that we might see what we have never seen before and be transformed by your living word. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, God knows our hearts and our spirits. God sees our struggles and forgives us. Know that it is in God's love that you live and move and have your being. Rejoice, for God is with you always. Amen. Now I'd like to invite our children to come join me here at the front. see you guys today. You know what has been on my mind recently? <laughs> That's a vague question. Who knows what's been on my mind recently? I tell you, cake. I don't know about you, but I love cake. In fact, I was doing some grocery shopping yesterday, and usually when I go grocery shopping, I follow a very specific list or I'll forget things. And I, I almost never buy stuff that's not on the list, but then I went through the cake aisle and I had to get some cake. But I didn't make it because I wanted to bring it here to show you. But I've been thinking about cake since two weeks ago. I don't know if you were here two weeks ago, but we baptized a boy. He is almost three years old named Jack. And then after worship, his parents had brought cake for everyone because baptizing their son was such a joy. And they wanted to share that joy with everyone. So we got to eat cake. And then next week... We're going to welcome some new members, and that's such a joyous experience when people decide that they want to become a member of the church, and guess what? We're going to have cake after worship. I love celebrating with cake, um, A, because I love to eat cake, but B, because 
it usually represents a joyous time, right? Often when we celebrate, we eat cake because we're filled with joy. And I especially love that we can celebrate and eat cake together here at church because there is so much to find at church that is joyful. God's love brings us so much joy. Being together brings us so much joy. And even though we aren't joyful all the time, right? Hard things happen in life. Sad things happen in life. The neat thing about God's love and God's joy is even sometimes when life is hard or difficult or sad, there are sometimes even moments when we can find joy even when we're sad. Here's an example. Last week, we had a messy church. And during messy church, we were sharing our joys and concerns. And someone, I forget who it was, but someone was sharing a concern for all the people who had lost their houses and all the fires that have been happening, which is a big concern. That's, that's very, it's been sad and hard for so many people. But then someone else said, you know, that is a concern. They said, but I also have a joy because in the midst of these fires, that person said, I have seen so many people helping. I have seen so many people offering their time to help. I've seen so many people offering to donate food and clothes and money. It's a really hard situation, but even in the midst of that hard situation, I have seen the joy of all the help and the love that has been given. And I really appreciated that, that God's joy is with us all the time. So even though maybe you probably shouldn't eat cake every single day, although wouldn't that be nice? I do invite you to look for God's joy every single day, even in the midst of the sad and the hard parts of life. Look for God's joy, because it's there all the time. All right? Maybe I'll go home and make this today. All right. <laughs> Let's go to Sunday school. Go now in peace. That's true. One of the children, as he was leaving, told me, you can't eat cake every day, you'll get cavities. <laughs> he is right. All right. Now is the time in our worship where we like to share with each other our joys and our concerns so we can be in prayer for and with each other during the week. Uh, I'm probably going to embarrass him, but I have a joy that Dominic is here with us today. Yes. Dominic, it is so good to see you. We've been, praying for, we've been praying for you a lot. He had a very significant back surgery many weeks ago and then was struggling with a very serious infection, has been in the hospital for a while, but is home and doing well and here in worship with us today. So it's good to see you and your family. Do you wanna, did you want to say something, Dominic? You are welcome. Good. Thomas says, thank you for the prayers and all the cards. It really meant a lot. Absolutely. Continued prayers because I know the healing process is a long one. Other joys or concerns to share? Yeah, Elizabeth. Oh, great. Welcome. A niece is visiting. Good to, good to have you with us. Others to share? Joys or concerns? Yeah, Jennifer. Yes, 
Absolutely. So she's offering prayers of gratitude for all the people that have opened up their homes, for people who have been displaced by the fires, also animals that have been displaced. Um, on that note, on the Narthex table, as you're leaving worship, Trig McLeod has put together a sheet of information for those of you wondering how's the best way to help, both for the fires and also for the recent hurricanes. She has just a one-pager front and back of different resources, different places that you might be able to help. So if you want to pick one up, it's on the table. Ah, joy for the sunshine and clear skies, yes. Anyone else? Joys or concerns? All right, let's take a few moments of quiet, and then I will lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, you hear our prayers, and for that we give you thanks. And these and all our prayers are offered in the name of the one who teaches us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day.
First scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. If you were paying attention last week, you'll notice a familiar scripture here, so your mind is not playing tricks on you. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to us. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, maltreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his, he sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out to the, into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. So Mike was right. This is the same scripture passage we spoke about last week. It's such a warm and fuzzy story. (laughs) I thought it was worth just, you know, wallowing in a little bit more. No, in truth, what happened is on the way out last Sunday, no fewer than five of you said, what about the one who was bound and thrown out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? That never happens. That five of you, I'm not even sure five of you make it through the sermon each week, but (laughs) to ask the same question, and if five of you asked it, more than that were thinking it. If you weren't here, I had preached about the ever-widening circle of God's invitation, how God is more and more inclusive and uh, in, in this parable, sending out invitations and when they're rejected, sending out more and inviting in the good and the bad. But you rightly said to me, well, what about the one who doesn't show up with the right robe and is cast out? Fair question. So after church, I scrapped my plans for this week and I set about studying the text again to figure out what to do with this last troubling piece of Jesus' teaching. Well, before I get going and to lower your expectations, always a helpful move, uh, I will say to you that I, was my, I had a divided attention this week, so for, forgive me. I preached some months ago about a mentor of mine, a New Testament scholar by the name of David Bartlett. He was a professor of mine and preached at my ordination uh, 10 years ago yesterday, actually. Uh, And I I preached about him because he'd had a stroke some months ago. Well, he died about a week or so ago. And so on Wednesday, which is my usual writing day, I was sitting there at my computer, and I was watching his funeral, which was being live-streamed from Yale's chapel, while writing the sermon. 
Now, I was never allowed to do homework in front of the TV as a kid, but I sort of feel like special dispensation applies here. So there I was listening to some of my other professors bear witness to this man's life and to the resurrection while I was trying to make good on what they had attempted to teach me so many years ago. So I was divided. Um, and I say that also because I recognize that's the state we walk around in a lot. I know you face that all the time. You have to show up somewhere to a meeting or to some engagement, but your head or your heart or both are elsewhere. And uh, I know you'll be forgiving with me this morning, but I hope you're as gracious with yourselves in those moments and with one another because we never know the untold burdens that people carry. Well, on to your question, which to me was really at its heart about the theme of exclusion. What do we do with the exclusion that shows up in this passage? Because when I read those troubling lines at the end, I want to say to Jesus, how could you, of all people, turn someone away from the party because they weren't wearing the right robe, the right outfit. If wearing the right outfit is the standard, I wouldn't have made it through my second day of high school. (laughs) And here is Jesus turning someone away. And then it struck me as I was asking Jesus that question that Jesus might turn the question on me. And what I mean by that is this. I'm quick to become outraged at the exclusion of a fictional character in a story that never happened. That's what a parable is. But am I as quick, Jesus might ask me, to be outraged about the exclusions that happen in my world of very real people? Real people who are kept from all sorts of things, like opportunities for good education, like access to clean air, clean water. I was listening to an interview this week with a woman from Flint, Michigan. To this day, she bathes in bottled water, one single serving at a time on her children because it's still not fixed. People who are denied access from safe neighborhoods, people who are excluded from reasonable access to health care that they can afford, who don't have equal access to or or access to equal treatment by police. It's easy to become outraged at the exclusions in the story and yet to become too comfortable with the exclusions in our own society. We see this with violence too in the Bible. People say in the older of the two testaments, I might trouble that, but let's go with it for a moment, how quick we are to condemn that and then yet how easily it is for us to excuse the violence in our own world, a necessary casualty of freedom, we say, or the price of spreading freedom, we sometimes say. I've been moved this week, I assume by a lot of you, judging by the prayers, about the overwhelming response to the fires, incredible generosity, people giving of their time, of their resources, opening their homes. It's brought out the best in people in many ways. That's come to the surface. But also beneath the surface, but rising up for me are a number of questions that moments like this raise for me. 
around exclusion. And I think of a lot of the people who live in Santa Rosa or other parts north of here or east of here. And while many of those people live there, they serve us here. Teachers, firefighters, police, plumbers, landscapers, laborers, nannies, nurses. They take care of us. They teach us. In some occasions, they raise our children. And yet, they're not paid enough to live among us, excluded because of economics. They're difficult questions. But if this Bible passage gets us to ask those difficult questions, even if by accident, it's done its job. You know, fire chief lost his house in that fire in Santa Rosa. He's the Mill Valley fire chief. That says something to me. I know a firefighter locally, and as I understand it, the firehouse in Ross, the wealthy community of Ross, the sleeping quarters for the firefighters are so moldy that they can't sleep there, so they have to sleep in temporary housing behind the firehouse because the town of Ross will not pay for a decent place for them to sleep. They save our lives, and we pray for them as we should, and we celebrate them as we should. But treating them properly might be the fullest expression of what Jesus would have us do. Ross, who, which was communicated to me a couple years ago, referred to to me by an African-American woman, actually to my wife, uh, as a sundown town. Well, I'd never heard that expression before, but she said, yeah, you know, it's a sundown town where if you're not white, you know you need to be gone or at the bus stop by sundown or you'll get picked up. I'd never heard those terms before. So the, the text, on purpose or not, raises uncomfortable questions about our communities. And the question is, will we be defensive at hearing them because they say some hard things for us to hear? Or, or can we hear them with a sense of openness, not being attacked, but feel like we're being invited in to employ all the creativity and the intelligence and the resources in the room to dream together about how we could address some of the crit- critical issues in the community. Now, that said, I'm quite aware that there's a a large difference between the exclusions that we see in our communities, and none of us like, and the exclusion that we seem to see uh, ordained, if you will, by the biblical text, by Jesus of all people. It still doesn't explain that. Well, again, I spent some time studying this week And one of the things I was reminded of by the scholars is that these stories, these parables, exist, of course, on multiple levels. And they're rich with metaphor and symbolism. And the problem is a lot of that symbolism is lost on contemporary ears, but it would have been very familiar and very understandable to the people of the time. So to us, at least to me, it sounds very frivolous that Jesus in this parable would keep someone out of the wedding banquet, the feast, which is the metaphor for the kingdom of heaven, all because they're not wearing a robe. Maybe they couldn't afford a robe. Maybe they just think that's a waste of money. But as scholars point out, the robe is a symbol in the story, a symbol 
for transformation. Now, we think of clothing in the opposite way today. We think of clothing as something superficial. You, you put it on, but it doesn't change what's inside. It's, it, that's not at all the case. But in the biblical usage, it's quite the opposite. In stories, the clothing is a reflection of an internal state of being. So you see this in the Apostle Paul. He writes in Romans uh, about conversion, and when he describes conversion, he says, put on the clothes of Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ, which isn't to put on a veneer, it's to have a complete transformation of the self and of the community. That's what it means to be clothed. And so the one who shows up to the wedding banquet without the robe wants access to the party without having to change his life. And Jesus is very clear that following him means something. It's leaving an old way of being behind, personally and collectively, so we can together inherit a new world, a new kingdom, which is a more authentic expression of the old. It's not disconnected from the old. It's a fulfillment of the old. And that requires transformation, if not of every individual, then certainly of the community. It's, if you want to use a less loaded example, think of going to a soccer coach and saying, I want to be a part of your team. I want to play in the field. My only condition is I will not use my feet. <laughs> well, it sort of makes no sense. Now, we wouldn't say the coach was excluding that player by not letting them play. The exclusion is the natural consequence of their actions. The person who shows up doesn't want to do what it takes to follow Jesus, so why would you go to a party of people following Jesus, if that makes any sense? So it's not exclusion as punishment. It's just exclusion as natural occurrence of the outcome. It changes everything. It's not about being properly uniformed. It's about being properly transformed. Still, our sensibilities might encounter that story and say, I don't know. I'm I'm taught nonetheless that we welcome everyone in, like a child running in (laughs) to a party. That's exactly how we should do it. And I and I agree. And and we'll say that the uh, the threshold for joining this congregation is exceptionally low. No offense. But think about it. If you come to us and say, we want to join the church, uh, we say, okay. That's all we ask. Do you want to be a part of this movement? If people say yes, we trust them. Okay? And I agree with that standard. I think it says all the right things in this historical moment to the world that the church would be inclusive, uh, would err toward that rather than exclusivity. Of course. Of course. So now that we're recommitted to that value, let me also make a case for the uh, necessity of transformation. For the the righteousness of, of saying we are about some things, which means we aren't going to be about other things. And of demanding that people change their lives or, or maybe that the community changes ever more to become more loving, more just, more fair, more righteous.
So I assume many of you have been following the uh, revelations around Harvey Weinstein, right? Those horrifying allegations, it's not that the allegations are horrifying, it's that the actions are horrifying, of sexual harassment, um, of sexual abuse, that most abhorrent of sins where one uses power to violate someone in the most intimate of ways into the most vulnerable spaces of bodily existence. It's awful. As I've been following that this past week or so, sitting in front of the computer screen, I have shuddered more than once. Not at the courageous revelations of all the celebrities, and I should say the courage shouldn't just be ascribed to their ability to speak up, because people should get to choose whether they speak up, but for those who have, it's been a gift. While the celebrity revelations have been eye-opening to me, they haven't been as moving as the revelations of my friends. On social media, every day I scroll down and more and more of them utter those two chilling words. Me too. One after another. Now the Me Too movement started years ago but has picked up steam in light of what Weinstein has done to so many people, of women and some men coming forward and saying, if we acknowledge what's been done to us, sexual harassment or sexual violence, then maybe the world will wake up and and make actual changes or recommit itself to change. And one after another of my friends have uttered those two words, me too, elementary school friends middle school, high school, college friends, me too. Graduate school friends, me too, me too. Seminary classmates, me too, me too. I'm in a preaching group with other pastors from around the country and half of the women so far have said, me too. Over and over again. Now, If we were to say that kind of behavior is not welcome, that kind of behavior is not uh, in concert with what's expected in the kingdom of heaven or what's allowed in the kingdom of heaven, would we call that exclusive? Well, technically, yes. But it's righteous exclusion. It's righteous exclusion because it says we will not be about this way of relating to one another. We will be about a different way of relating to one another, defined by Jesus Christ. Another way of saying it is uh, our modern parable might instead say the kingdom of life, if it's not like a wedding feast, it's like a great party. But in this party, women don't have to worry about walking around in pairs or wondering uh, what to wear that will be too suggestive or not suggestive. To this party, we might say, you have to clothe yourselves with Christ in order to get in. But that doesn't mean making a pledge to the Presbyterian Church or even the Christian Church. What it means is pledging to treat all beings and all bodies as sacred. To come to this party, you have to clothe yourselves with Christ, which isn't about acknowledging or bowing down to the power of the church or the power of 
pastors. It's about uh, empowering the powerless and giving voice to the voiceless, or maybe even better, just making room so that the voiceless can find their own voice and then listening to them. To come to this party, you have to clothe yourself with Christ, which isn't about being a fashion model. It's about modeling your life after Jesus. Saying this movement is about something, even though there's diversity within it. It is about transformation best we can understand into the body of Christ living and breathing in the world. Focus on the transformation, not on the exclusion. Focus matters when it comes to reading the Bible. One of my lasting, um, one of the lasting lessons that I carry with me to this day from Professor Bartlett is that what you focus on in the text makes all the difference in how you use the biblical text. He was preaching one time in chapel about that difficult passage right after the Beatitudes, all the blesseds, when you have to offer all the woes, all the the times when Jesus says woe to those, and he talks about those people who have a lot in this world and what's demanded of them. And it's a difficult passage to preach. And he said, don't avoid that passage, but never use it to make people feel guilty or to beat them up with it. You always use the biblical text instead to inspire people to feel responsible for one another. That's what Jesus came to teach us, that we belong to one another and we're responsible for each other in the world in which we inhabit and in which we create. Well, that's the lesson that sticks with me from him, but it's not my fondest or most prominent memory No, what I remember most about Professor Bartlett is how he sang the hymns in chapel. Loudly is the best way to describe them. (laughs) He sang them loudly not because he had a perfect voice, though his voice was well enough. He sang them loudly because he believed them, because they were beloved by him because they bore witness to the Jesus to whom he had given his life and given his life into teaching other people how to try and teach. I discovered his loud voice by accidentally standing in front of him one worship service. (laughs) But then I made it a spiritual practice to always try to get near so I could hear that booming voice. At his funeral this week, one of his former students talked about the first time they'd heard Professor Bartlett preach, and he preached on a time when Jesus gathered the tax collectors and the sinners, those that other people wanted to exclude. He let them stay, and he told them about, he lifted up the image of a shepherd, the kind of shepherd that will leave the 99 behind to go get the one that's on the outside. And for him, that was the dominant image of God, the one to focus on. And it's fitting, of course, that Jesus described himself elsewhere, not primarily as the gatekeeper, but as the good shepherd. And as I I heard that former student tell that story, I I was struck because the very hymn that I most associate with Professor Bartlett in his booming voice is my shepherd will supply my need. This powerful song, this paraphrase of the 23rd Psalm. I'll read you a verse from that. 
sure provisions of my God, attend me all my days. O may your house be my abode and all my work be praise. There would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. Now you tell me, was Jesus primarily about exclusion? Or was he about throwing a party that was so fun and so safe and so life-giving that it was worth dressing up for? Amen. morning. In the early service, I, um, d I did what I will do now, and that is to apologize if some of you have heard this before. Um, I was asked to do this, I think it was Doug's last year uh, here, it's the last time I, I put in a word for stewardship, um, and I'm using some of the same material, so forgive me if you've heard it before. But it goes like this. Um, I grew up in Tyler, Texas, and was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. And one thing about Southern Baptist and the South uh, is that if uh, you've been there, you know there's a Baptist church on every corner, just about. And one of them is usually a mega church of some sort. Well, in the case of Tyler, Texas, it was Green Acres Baptist Church. Uh, it was not my home church, but it was uh, a sight to behold. It was and still is amazing. It's a sprawling complex. Not only do they have like a 2,000-seat auditorium, but they've got a youth center, they've got a gymnasium, they've got a senior center, and all sorts of, uh, of uh, things going on. And if you ever go to church there on a Sunday, the, 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 the Sunday is like a production. Um, you don't even have to open the hymnal because the words are projected you know, on the wall so you, don't, uh, so you, can, so you can sing along. And um, on high holy days, they have uh, these, um, 
they, the plays that they do, you know, sort of in full costume and, you know, acting out biblical stories and such. So my niece, who still lives there, she refers to it as karaoke church. <laughs> um, but another friend in Tyler is not so kind. She calls it Six Flags Over Jesus. <laughs> I still love that. Um, anyway, the point here is that uh, Green Acres Baptist has nothing on Westminster. Uh, this things, the things that this church does with a fraction of a Green Acres Baptist budget is astounding. I'm, I'm constantly, I mean, every Sunday when I look at this bulletin and everything that's going on here, everything that we're participating in uh, is, is just amazing. Um, and I read this and I look at what we do. We have extensive community outreach activities, uh, numerous opportunities for spiritual learning and growth, uh, men's and women's groups. We've got a vibrant youth program and children's program. Um, and we all sorts of social justice causes that we support, interfaith opportunities, etc. The list goes on. And I support Westminster because I believe in all the things that we support. I think my money's being well spent. I also am grateful that we're nurtured each week by the inspiring and thoughtful and thought-provoking sermons from our pastors who are also there for us when we need them. And your fellow church members are there when you need them too. This has certainly been true in my case as I've battled cancer. I can't tell you how many cards, emails, calls, um, and just random acts of kindness I've experienced throughout this, and I continue to experience. Uh, not to mention the rides to chemo, uh, offers of food and other forms of fellowship, I felt completely enveloped uh, in love from this community. And it's, I love this church and everything it stands for and for the people who are acting out their faith in very tangible ways, in many cases toward me. I feel my financial support has been returned to me uh, many-fold, uh, many, many-fold. But in closing, there's a wonderful old Italian joke about a poor man who goes to church every day and prays before the statue of a great saint, begging, Dear saint, please, 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 give me the grace to win the lottery. <laughs> this lament goes on for months. Finally, the exasperated statue comes to life, looks down at the begging man, and says in weary disgust, My son, my son, please, buy a ticket. <laughs> so get your pledge cards in.
You may be seated. Betty already did my job for me by encouraging you to look at all this that is happening here at the church, get involved in ways that make sense for you, to highlight just a couple of things that are happening today immediately following worship. There'll be a healing service. It'll be here in the sanctuary led by Rob and Ted. Um, if you're looking for all kinds of different healing, I invite you to come and be a part of that. And then tomorrow morning, our yoga series continues every Monday at 9.30, led by Erin Elliott. In fact, she has extended that series through the end of November. So if you've been thinking about giving it a try, now's the perfect time to do so. Yoga for all levels and experiences. All right, I invite you now to stand as you feel comfortable and join in our closing hymn. It is number 803.
I don't know if you noticed, but something happens in that hymn between the first and the second verse. In the first uh, verse, God is in the third person, he or she or it, but by the second, God has become you, the object of relationship. And so may you be ever drawn into that relationship this week and in the weeks to come. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.